Amen and amen. If you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to join me in Mark chapter 11. We're going to read a few verses in Mark 11, and then we're going to jump into Mark 13 and just make our way uh, right through Mark chapter 13 this morning. To many people around the world, they're celebrating Christ's entrance into Jerusalem today, to the shouts of Hosanna and to palm trees and uh, clothing being laid down as he enters the city. But it's just a brief time just a brief time and those some of those same folks will be yelling crucify him and crucify him and so what is it that took place uh in just those few days that would turn cries of hosanna to cries of crucify him we're going to begin in mark chapter 11 i want to read you verse number seven as we look at the palm sunday mark 11 verse number seven the bible says this and and they brought the colt to jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And I want you to notice this next phrase, because it's going to show us what Jesus does after entering Jerusalem. And he entered into Jerusalem, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus goes into the temple after this Palm Sunday entrance, and, and it is going, the temple is going to be central to these last few days of Jesus' life. And it will be Jesus' teaching in the temple and Jesus' teaching about the temple that will be central to the reason why Jesus eventually ends up at the cross. If you're staying in Mark 11 with me, look at verse number 12. We're not going to read it. But the next day after what we just read, the day this is now Monday of Passion Week. Jesus leaves Bethany where he had spent the night, heads back to the temple, and along the way he sees a fig tree, a fig tree that has no fruit in it, no fruit on it. And Jesus curses this fruitless fig tree, and then they continue on to the temple. Now, if you remember our message from Mark last week, Jesus Jesus used the miracle of healing a man in stages to reveal to the disciples that they have not yet seen him clearly. You see me as the Messiah, but not yet as the suffering servant. And we're going to see a parallel with this fig tree and the temple as we make our way through Mark chapter 11, because Jesus passes this fig tree, says you are fruitless, walks into the temple and has to run the money changers out and in so many words although he doesn't actually say it but in so many words he says you are fruitless not bringing the fruits of god that needs to be brought and then he leaves the temple verse 20 tells us on the next day still in mark 11 verse 20 it tells us the next day the disciples pass by that fig tree that had been cursed and the disciples pause and they look at the physical condition of the tree and withered up all the way to the roots this tree that you cursed it's withered away and gone and they enter into the temple Now, the same place that Jesus had called them fruitless as well the day before. And for the rest of Mark 11, Jesus will answer questions and talk to those authority leaders in the temple. All of chapter 12 of Mark is Jesus in the temple on that day after 
the fig tree. After having seen that cursed tree withered away, he's now in the temple, all of the rest of 11 and all of chapter 12. And then they leave the temple in Mark chapter 13, if you would. Mark chapter 13, verse number one. As they leave the temple, they pause to look at the condition of this temple just like they had paused to look at the condition of the fig tree. But notice the vast difference. Verse number one of Mark 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus replies in verse two. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone Stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, what Jesus was saying, they made no sense to the disciples. Like, what is it? What are you talking about? And what do you mean? And they, they're going to ask him that in just a moment. But what Jesus was saying, as we'll find out, is that the spiritual condition of the temple and the temple leaders has withered away to its roots, just like the tree. But the tree physically, you could see. Spiritually, you cannot. I wonder how many of us are like that. Our spiritual condition is withered away, but because we could put on nice clothes, we don't notice that. And then look at verse number three, when the disciples asked Jesus to explain himself, he says, and as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, sorry, let me move the slide. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So we see the question, when is this going to happen? Now, here's where it gets a little bit dicey for biblical interpretation. Some are going to, some excellent Bible scholars are going to take the rest of what Jesus says and they're going to apply it to the end of the world. Other Bible teachers will take what Jesus says and they're going to talk about the question that the disciples just asked was, well, when's the temple going to be destroyed like you just talked about? Which one is it? And you'll see two interpretations and I'm not trying to say this one's right, this one's wrong. I I'm just going to tell you, we're going to leave the end of the world apocalyptic to the side and we're going to talk about how this really would have applied to the disciples who asked Jesus, when will this take place? Meaning, when is the end of the temple coming? Look at verse number five. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Well, now that's a very strange way to start. They're asking, how do we know? And he says, well, let me tell you how, you, how you'll know it's not. He starts with a warning when they're asking with a sign. And his warning is, don't let someone else fool you. Well, who else would fool you? Well, he says in verse number six, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. In the name of what? Like they're saying, I'm Jesus. No, no remember Jesus just the week, just, just, a, just the uh, ver chapter we were at last week where Peter said, you are the Christ, the Christ meaning Messiah. Many will come in the name Messiah and say, follow me and lead many astray. Verse number Seven, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various in places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. <laughs> 
What does that mean? Jesus is saying you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars, but don't be alarmed. That's not the end. You'll hear of nation rising against nation, which is exactly what would happen before the end of the temple. You would have the Jewish uprising try to fight against the Roman occupiers, and there would be war that would eventually result in the temple being knocked down, no stone left upon another. He says you're going to hear of earthquakes and you're going to hear of famines, but don't be alarmed. Then he makes the statement at the end, this is the beginning of birth pains. Birth pains. Labor pains. I'm really glad I'm a man. That's all I can say. I've seen my wife in, in labor. And the thing about labor is you don't just have one pain and then what you're waiting for comes. There's wave after wave after wave after wave of pain that comes before what you're waiting for is finally seen. And Jesus is warning his disciples as we apply it to them. You are going to have wave after wave of difficulty, but don't be alarmed. Don't panic. It's just the birth pains. The end is not here yet. And then look at verse 9. He's going to tell them about more birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. So not only are there going to be earthquakes and famines and wars and rumors of wars, but you will be beaten. You will be captured within synagogues, and you will stand before councils, and you will bear witness of me. And that is exactly what happened to the disciples of Jesus as they began to share the message of Christ, even in Jewish synagogues, who were some of the greatest enemies of the message of Christ. As we know, Saul of Tarsus would go and he would capture Christians. And Jesus is telling the disciples, this will happen, but it is not the end. Verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And again, I know we often look apocalyptic at that, like the gospel's got to get to the whole world before the end of the world comes. But in this, if we're applying it to the way the disciples, to Jesus speaking to the disciples, we actually know in the book of Acts, there's missionaries like Saul and Barnabas and Silas who are taking the message of the gospel and they're taking it from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Rome was the center of the world. This book, Mark, was written to Christians in Rome. So we're beginning to see the gospel going to all nations through the book of Acts. And I just think that doesn't make, make a lot of, like, that doesn't really move me a lot. But think about if you were a Roman Christian. You got this letter and, and you, you already are under persecution and your family is already in some ways turning against you. And you're like, but Jesus said this was going to happen. Think of the comfort that this had to bring. But then Jesus says in verse number 11, he says, and when they bring you to trial, to deliver you over do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say but say whatever is given to you in that hour for it is not you who speak but the holy spirit brother will deliver brother over to death and the father is child and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved a lot of bad things are going to happen don't be alarmed and don't panic when they happen. If you can make it 
to the end. You'll see what, what I'm talking about. But then Jesus turns his attention no longer to what is not the end, but now to what is the end for the disciples in verse number 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. That's, I read that so many times, like that's a really, the let the reader understand. I really wish I could understand that like the writer meant it. But basically what we're going to find out is when you see this, the abomination of desolation, which we'll talk about in a moment, here's what we need to do. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountain. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter into his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Run, run, run. Verse 17. And alas, for women who are pregnant, what a, what a scripture to come across on the day we're talking about the life center. You see Jesus' care for the vulnerable. Women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as, had not, as has not been from the beginning of the creation, of cre- creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Meaning that destruction is going to be so bad that if Jesus, that if God does not purposely cut short the days, everyone would die. But for the sake of his own people, he would shorten the days of destruction. Man, and I know that's got an application as we look to the future, but here's he's talking to, to his disciples. What, what would the abomination of desolation be? What, what does all of this mean? The abomination of desolation is actually talked about in the book of Daniel. Much of Daniel was prophetic and and the abomination of desolation was about invading armies that stopped the proper sacrifices in the temple and false worship would take its place. And I know this is a history lesson, so let me go through briefly, but just to keep you in mind, in 168 BC, there was a Greek king whose name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he invaded Jerusalem and captured the city of Jerusalem and went into the temple of God and set up a, set up a statue of Zeus in God's temple and then sacrificed a pig on the altar of incense. You know what pigs are to the Jews. And an extra biblical writer, meaning someone outside of the Bible, wrote about that and called that event an abomination of desolation. It was false worship in the place of worship for the true God. And the Jewish people, that made them so upset. They revolted and gathered an army and fought against the Greek armies and pushed them completely out of Jerusalem. And the Jews took back control of their own city for about 100 years. And then a Roman general, whose name was Pompey, he conquered Jerusalem and put it under Roman rule. 
Historians tell us about 35 to 40 years after Jesus has ascended back up to heaven, the Jews get so tired of the Roman revolt. Remember, they expected Jesus as the Messiah to lead them out from under the Romans, but Jesus laid his life down and they're still under Roman rule and the Jews got so upset, they rose up an army again to now fight back with the Romans like they had fought the Greeks before. But Rome brought in many, many reinforcements and squashed the rebellion of the Jews. And in that time, around 68 to 70 AD, the very temple that Jesus was sitting at, talking to you about his disciples, was knocked over stone upon stone after stone. It was knocked over. And they said over a million Jews were killed based on the historian Josephus' writing. But here's one thing he said. Very few Jewish Christians in this uprising were killed. Because the Jewish Christians, this is Josephus' writing, heeded Jesus' warning and had already fled the city when they saw the Romans coming. Which helps us understand a little bit more of if we go back to Mark chapter 13, helps us understand verse number 21 a little bit better. And this is what Jesus says, speaking again to his disciples. And then if anyone says to you, remember the chaos that is happening, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. You know when there's chaos, somebody comes up with the answer. And he said, there's going to be people who will rise to say, I am the Christ. But be on guard. Don't believe them. I've already warned you. And look at verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, again, now interpreting not necessarily the great tribulation, but the tribulation that the Jews would have endured from the persecution of the Romans. In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And I know I read that and like, how can that be about anything other than the end of the world? But something to keep in mind, the Old Testament prophets would sometimes use the heavenly beings like the sun, moon, and stars to talk about the kingdoms. And when a kingdom would fall, it would be like the stars were falling. And he says, the way Jesus uses these words, the powers in heaven will be shaken. As if there is authority and power being taken from one and given to another. It is a rise and fall of power. Which leads us to this verse that I've been waiting to get to. Verse 26. Where it says, the Son of Man. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. It's only natural to associate this phrase with the second coming of Jesus, which, man, every believer needs to have our heart looking for. And yet I'm going to take this and apply it as if Jesus is still talking to the disciples. Because as he uses this phrase, the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, it's the same phrase, and I'm not going to read it, but when Jesus is being questioned in Mark chapter 14 by the high priests and the council, and the last 
moments of his life and they're like, are you the Christ? And his answer is right here behind me. Mark chapter 14, verse 62. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven. And when the high priest heard Jesus say this, he rips clothes off and they declare blasphemy. And it is here where now they're saying we've got to crucify this man this man who had just walked a few days earlier into jerusalem or had ridden into jerusalem a few days earlier to the cries of hosanna now the cries of crucify are coming from the high priest and the council why just just because he declared to be the messiah because many people had done that because he said the son of man in the clouds of heaven which refers back again to Daniel, an Old Testament prophet, who said this about the Son of Man. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And here's, here's what I want you to get. The Son of Man in the clouds of heaven isn't coming to earth call his people he's coming to the ancient of days well who is the ancient of days well god the father so the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven is coming to the ancient of days to god the father for what reason verse 14 and to him to that son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so when the son of man comes in the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days, he receives power and he receives glory and he receives authority over a kingdom that will never pass away. So when Jesus is talking to his disciples there and looking at the temple, do you know at that moment where the presence of God resided? In the temple. On the Ark of the Covenant. In the Holy of Holies behind a veil. And that's where the glory of God was. And the keepers of the temple would be the ones who had been given authority by God to care for the temple given the authority by God to declare people righteous but Jesus is now saying when the son of man goes to the ancient of days he will receive power and he will receive glory and he will receive authority over a kingdom that will never end <laughs> it was the temple where one would find God's presence and his glory and the authority that God had been given but now Jesus is saying the heavens are being shaken and the stars are falling and power is being taken from one and giving to another and no longer will the temple be the place where man must go to meet God no longer will the priest hold the authority to declare who is righteous before God. No longer will the high priest be the only one to enter into the presence of God. From the ancient of days himself, the Son of Man will be given all dominion, all glory, and all power. Because upon accomplishing the will of the Father, 
Jesus goes and he is rewarded as Philippians chapter 2, as he obeyed and submitted, he then is exalted by the Father because he laid down his life, because he obeyed the law perfectly, because he suffered as a substitutionary sacrifice. God exalts him and gives him glory, authority, and dominion, and all will bow. And now here's what those priests are knowing. No longer is the temple the place to meet God or to experience God's glory once the Son of Man receives that. The Son of Man is now the way. The Son of Man now becomes the replacement of the failed temple. Failed temple. Yeah, the, the failed temple, because the temple was meant to be a place where men could be made right with God by the sacrifice of another and then made right with one another because of that sacrifice and being made right with God. But you know what happened to the Jews? Those, those high priests began to take those sacrifices and, and they were made to be isolated and separated and Justice and mercy was supposed to be met in the temple, but there was not justice and mercy. There was condemnation and guilt that was given. The commands of God that were meant to show us God's loving goodness and guiding our lives had become stones that weighed the Jewish people down. But now in Christ, justice and mercy meet. And now in Christ, atonement is found in the sacrifice of another for good. And now in Christ, we would find our righteous standing with God being declared by the perfect high priest. And now in Christ, the glory of God would no longer be found in Jerusalem, but it would be found in all the world. How in the world is the glory of God now going to be found in all the world? You remember what Jesus says in the Great Commission? His first words. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He says this after his resurrection. What do you mean all authority has been given to you? Yeah, by the ancient of days to the son of man. And now I'm here to tell you, I have all authority. Here's what I want you to do. Go and make disciples. Because as you make disciples throughout the world, the glory of God begins to spread throughout the world. And while the former location of the glory of God was behind a veil in the temple, now those stones have been knocked down and the living stones, as Peter calls us as Christians, the living stones begin to go throughout the world as the glory of God. And as we gather together, those living stones come together in worship of him. And what is, what do we hear by Paul in 1 Corinthians 6? Now, where's the temple? You. As a believer in Christ are now the temple. Verse 27, let me keep reading. It says, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And, and again, I realize I understand fully and I'm not trying to conflict with the apocalyptic meaning, but, but here we see that God is going to send out his angels, his messengers, as we read in Revelation, his angels, 
the messengers, those with the gospel. And, and from this end of heaven, from this end of heaven, from this end of, of the earth, God begins to gather to himself. He calls unto himself those who are his. And then Jesus says in verse 28, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. And I, I believe, and I, again, I'm, I'm not saying I'm completely accurate on this, but I believe that just any fruit tree, he's choosing a fig tree, and from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So when we see these, these leaves budding, we know summer's coming, right? So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates and i couldn't begin to tell you what that means by he is very near i don't know if that's the destruction of the temple the leader i don't know exactly what that means <laughs> i don't try to have all the answers i want you to know that verse 30 he says truly i say to you this generation and this is why i believe we can we can look at this with an understanding that jesus is talking to his disciples too this generation will not pass away until all these things take place and so Jesus is saying this, you group of men I'm talking to, this generation that's alive today, you will not pass away until everything we have talked about has taken place, which is why I think it can be applied to the destruction of the temple. In verse 31, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And then Jesus begins to turn his attention now. In verse number 32, to the end of the chapter, which I'm not going to read. I'm just going to read verse 32 and then stop. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And see, here's the thing. Since Jesus knew all about the destruction of the temple, it, it makes sense that now he's going to turn from the destruction of the temple to completely apocalyptic, to the end of the world. And he says, I don't even know when that hour is going to come. Only the, the Father. And I know if you're like me, I'm like, how does Jesus, if he's God, how does he not know everything? We have to remember that Jesus came in the incarnation. He came limited. Jesus, God's omnipresent, right? But we don't find God in 10, we don't find Jesus walking around in 10 places at once. He's limited himself. He's limited his glory. But also we find the beauty of the Trinity where Jesus knows there are times to submit to the Father and allow the Father to have his trust. Because remember when his disciples come to him and say, hey, I want to sit on your right and I want to sit on your left. And he said, that's not up to me. That's up to my Father. As if I just, I trust him. But the main thrust of verses 32 through the end of the chapter is for us. Like, how do we live waiting for his return that's going to come and it's going to be awesome? Our Savior is coming back. He has given his life on the cross. He has raised himself from the dead and he is in heaven awaiting that return. How do we live knowing that? And this is just how I want to apply it to our lives briefly. Followers of Christ are serving a Lord who is calling us to follow his example, not simply his commands. Think about what he said to the, to the disciples. You're going to be you're, you're going to suffer. You're going to stand before councils and you'll be persecuted and you'll be killed. He said, that's going to happen to you, disciples. 
And Jesus was suffered. He stood before a trial, persecuted, and he was killed. And as we read the scriptures and know that Jesus calls us to love one another, it's because he first loved us. And as he calls us to forgive one another, it's because he has forgiven us and extend mercy. And whatever it is that God leads us to live out in our lives, it's so cool that we don't have a God who just sits up in heaven and says, these are the things you have to do. Our God came from heaven and lived it all out for us, said, you'll never do it perfectly, so let me give you my righteousness. Now go out and follow my example. What a God we have to serve. Not a distant God, but a present, ever-present God. Secondly, followers of Jesus are witnesses of God's glory to a world who is living for their own glory. And that is not meant to be a criticism. But man, without the filling of the Holy Spirit without the scales being ripped off of our eyes. What else do we have to live for but for our own glory? It's only when the Spirit comes within us and reveals Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is our righteousness. Do we then awaken ourselves to say, I can live for the glory of another rather than for the glory of myself? And when we live for His glory and not our glory, Guys, because everybody wants the newest and the best and the coolest and the promotion. But when we live thinking, ah, you know what? My Savior's coming back one day. This is all temporary. This won't matter for eternity. I'll live for His glory. That gives us opportunities to be a witness, not just with our words, but a witness with our lives. As we enter, as even as, as Tamara mentioned and Gordon mentioned, as we enter into the lives of others to show them there is a greater glory than self to live for is God's. And last, followers of Jesus are empowered by the presence and glory of God to live out his mission. Last thing I want to say. Could you, could you imagine being a Jew in the temple and knowing inside that building, behind that curtain, behind that wall right there, the glory of God. But you never get to see it. You never get to experience it because you're not the high priest to go into that place only once a year. How bad would you want to see that? And because of Jesus, we don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to bring our sacrifices. We don't have to stand outside of the walls of the temple and wonder what, 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 would it, what must it be like? Instead, Jesus came and he ripped the veil down and said, no longer is the presence and glory of God behind a wall. The presence and glory of God are to all who will believe in me. Whew. Take that glory behind that veil 
It lives in you today. It lives in you today. It's there. It's present. And what that means is if Jesus is calling you to do something, to have a conversation, to invite someone, to share, to get involved in someone's life, he's not just telling you to do it. He's giving you an example, and he is reminding you, and I am in you to empower you for anything I ask you to do. That is really cool. Now, again, let me close and tell you this. I know that there's some who will be like, Pastor, what you just said, that makes no sense to me, that whole thing. I, I'm sorry. Like I told you, there's, there's a way to take it. I was, just bringing you, I was just bringing you one interpretation, and I'm not trying to say that what I just shared with you is the only way. It is the right way. But it is a really exciting thing to know that the Son of Man is the one who brought all authority and glory and power. And it's no longer behind a curtain and it's available to us. And we look for the coming of Jesus, not thinking, I, I don't, I hope he doesn't come today. I, I hope it's not today because I got some fun stuff to do. <laughs> I hope he comes because what a glorious moment that will be to see the son of man coming, take his own. That's exciting. But that's what sent Jesus to the cross. He's coming back. Are you ready? Are you excited? I can't wait. Would you pray with me? Man, Lord, that's going to be a that's going to be a day. Either, either, either there's going to be a day where, where, where I'm standing on this earth and my eyes open up and you are there. Ha, that's, that would be so awesome. Or there's going to be a day where my body gives out and I'll close my eyes for the last time on this earth and I am awakened in your presence and that's going to be a good day. I don't know how it's going to happen and when it's going to take place, but there's going to be a really, really exciting moment when I am in your presence and I look forward to that. But the only way that takes place is because you laid your life down and then you took it back from death and you took it back from sin and you took it back from hell and you came back to life to say, I reign death you have been put to death and sin you do not have the rule over me in hell you thought you had me but you never did Lord then you made that available to all of us who will simply believe in you ah that's so awesome father I pray that we as a church we'd be so moved and so excited and so celebratory in what you have done for us that we fall on our knees and say, Jesus is our Lord, what would you have me to do? <laughs> and then we get up with confidence and boldness, knowing that we are filled with the presence and have the glory of God. And we are the temple. And we can do anything that you have called us to do. Heads bowed and eyes closed. I just want to, there's just two, it's two groups of people in here. Either, either you're a part of the temple 
you, you are the temple because Christ's spirit lives within you or, or you're on the outside kind of looking in. And that's, that's no place that Christ wants you to be. He's, that invitation is open to all. It's got to be a willingness to say, I don't have the answer Jesus does. I don't have the righteousness only Jesus does. I cannot, only he can for me. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your personal savior, if you've never trusted in his work and his work alone, please don't leave today without celebrating that you could be a part of the temple. And I'll be at the back door in just a few moments. Pastor Mike and Pastor Michael, we'd be happy. We would be honored. It'd be the thrill of our lives to take you and introduce you to the glory of God that once was behind the veil that is now available to all. I'd love to do that. Just tell me you want to know more. And I'll share that with you. But if you are the temple, <laughs> you're a living stone. How's that stone living? Is that stone living with confidence, with excitement, with joy, empowered? Or is that stone just making its way from day to day? Oh, may we be those excited living stones of God. Whatever he calls you to do, he's already done. And he's there to empower you. So let's step into the lives of people and take the glory of God from behind the veil to beyond the borders. And let's change this community for the glory of God. Father, we love you, but only because you first loved us. Thank you. Thank you for who you are. We praise you as our Lord and Savior for what you have done as we remember this week your broken body, your shed blood, and your risen from the grave. In your name we pray.